Good morning and greetings in Jesus' name. We're glad for the presence of everyone this morning. Another day of life under the sun, I guess. So, Turn with me to James 5, if you would. We've had quite a number of, of uh, themes out of the book of James here that we've looked at over the last year and a half or so, and uh, we're going to go have at least one more go at it this morning. I think uh, I think what I'm going to do here is we're going to start at um, chapter 4, verse 13, and read through chapter 5, verse 6. Go to now, ye that say, today or tomorrow we will go into such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. Whereas ye know not what shall be on the morrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that ye ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Go to now, ye rich men, weep and howl for your miseries that shall come upon you. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. Ye have heaped treasure together for the last days. Behold the hire of the laborers who have reaped down your fields, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth. And the cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and have and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in a day of slaughter. Ye have condemned and killed the just, and he doth not resist you. Now, I don't know how many of you have read over that passage and just kind of scratched your head and said, hmm. Wonder what all he means there. I am a, a bit unsure of exactly who James was, James was addressing here. When I first looked at it, I thought, well, you know, he says in the beginning of the book that he is addressing the twelve tribes that are scattered abroad, and those twelve tribes scattered abroad were Christians. So I would, I would initially I thought, well, perhaps it's it's to Christians, but then I was um, I was reading, doing some other uh, reading of different uh, um, commentaries and so on, on on the trying to get a context for this, and there was some thought that perhaps it was more directed to um, a contrast between the ungodly and the godly, because he kind of switches um, gears in verse 7, and he says, be patient, therefore, brethren, almost like, okay, now we're going to talk to the brothers now. We weren't talking about them before here in the, in, in the verses preceding. I'm not sure, but I know this. There certainly is principles here in these verses that whether... Whether it's believers or unbelievers, they apply. It's kind of like the rules of life under the sun. They they apply whether you're a Christian or not. I uh, I don't know how many of you uh, get this Anabaptist financial um, paper newsletter thing. Um, I happen to get it, and um, I was interested as I read the one of the little articles in here by uh, 
a man by the name of Richie Lauer. I don't know him, but he's a, he's, a, he's an Anabaptist Foundation uh, loan officer, I guess. And I'm just going to read you an excerpt out of uh, out of this article that that kind of goes along with this theme here that we're in in the book of James. So it goes like this. I am, I am concerned about some dangers we faced as conservative Anabaptists. Number one, economic prosperity built on debt and government subsidies is unsustainable. At a national level, the printing and borrowing of money solves no problems. At some point, predictable, serious, and unavoidable consequences will arrive and affect all of us regardless of our level of direct participation. Number two, when the consequences do come, it is an open question as to how our people may fare. I recently heard comments worth pondering, and this is the comments that he heard. We now have an entire generation of Amish and Mennonite businessmen and families who have never experienced financial hardship. Most of those under the age of 40 never experienced hard times. They only know how to operate with easy credit and more high-paying work than they have time to do. What is going to happen when the easy money ends? This was a general observation, and there are certainly exceptions to us, to it. But how much truth is there in these thoughts? Number three, our people are becoming accustomed to inflated incomes and lifestyles supported by government subsidies to the general economy. This change impacts views of biblical stewardship. Some families and churches in our constituency have accepted direct government subsidies. Others have refused to accept these subsidies and sent their checks back to the government. Whether or not we have cashed the government's checks personally, our incomes are probably inflated as a direct result of these subsidies. A fair share of the subsidies went on items manufactured and sold by conservative Anabaptists. Our record years in sales was probably a direct result of government subsidies. And number four, wealth has a strong and often negative influence on a people group. It tends to erode both trust in God and dependence on the church brotherhood. I am concerned that padded bank accounts and the accumulation of comforts generally act to weaken dependence on God. Many of us already struggle against pride. The belief is, I have earned it, is a wrong response to prosperity. Many of us become less open to brotherhood concerns and correction when we falsely believe that we do not need the brotherhood in the financial realm of our lives. And I'm going to stop reading there. But I read over that, and I reread over that. And I don't know how you feel when you read something like that, or you read James 5. But if you don't watch it, you can almost feel guilty for who you are. Like, what am I supposed to do with this? Um, for some reason, the Lord saw fit that I was born in the United States of America, as, as you were too. And um, this is a very wealthy economy, and we have, we have prospered in this, and we have become some of the wealthiest people on the earth, speaking in generalities. Uh, probably the poorest among us is very wealthy compared to the world standards. So it's a, it's a, um, it's a little dichotomy we live in because when you read through the Bible, Old and New Testament, um, there is always this warning of what wealth can do to you. We, we had it in today's Sunday school lesson, didn't we? 
You know, if you're too wealthy, chances are you can't sleep well at night. You know, um, just mundane things like that. And um, we all know the, the parables of the sower. We know about Jesus' teachings on, uh, on um, how earthly material things and kingdom principles tend to pull against each other. Um, he talks about the deceitfulness of riches, riches. And in the famous story of the rich young ruler, they were indeed deceitful to him. So what do we do with all this? Well, I, I want to say this. God did not put us here helter-skelter. Uh, he just didn't plop people, you know, um, where he, you know, mindlessly. We're here for a reason. And I believe we can be Christians in North America in our wealthy economy. I really do believe we can be. However, I do concur with what this, uh, with what this man said in this article I read that it's a challenge. It's a real challenge. And I don't know that all of us are doing well with the challenges, okay? And so I would just like to just go through these uh, verses a little bit here in James and just methodically look at the challenges that wealth will inevitably bring with it. And um, and, and it's, it's good for each one of us to just sit back and consider, how am I doing with these challenges, how uh, how would uh, how would God analyze me if uh, the if the standards of analysis was here from this from these verses that we we have read this morning? So uh, so let's do that a little bit. Let's go through this and uh, and see if we can figure some of this out. So the uh, the first thing I see here in the first uh, verse here in chapter five is the misery of wealth. And again, I, I go back to our Sunday school lesson. We, we didn't really go over that part much, but that's pretty much what Solomon was outlining, how miserable it is to be super wealthy. And here James says that your miseries will come upon you. Usually you would think, or I, I think our, the way our minds work, is we think of wealth as a way to decrease our misery, James says it's actually going to increase it, and it's probably something that's going to come down the road. And I find it so ironic because, again, while we don't we don't get into the politics, we 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 hear it, don't we? And every two years, the same cycle is is uh, repeated, and the same things are said. If we could just have a lifter up of the of the poor of the world. Things would be so much better. And it is directly opposed to what the Bible says, right? So why does wealth bring misery? I think wealth generally promises much, but ultimately it delivers little in the way of satisfaction. Some of the other wealth gives an elusive assurance of security, and then it makes us vulnerable when that it doesn't deliver, all right? Think about this. Can money actually buy security? Can money buy health? Can money even buy food? Now, just think through that a little bit. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the name uh, Dave Ramsey, and I'm not sure that I'm here to necessarily promote him, but he does have some interesting things to say. And, And there was one thing he said once upon a time that has always stuck with me, and it was something along this order, and this isn't a direct quotation, it's just something I've remembered. His point was that 
if apocalyptic times would come, it's not going to be the guy with gold under his bed that's going to do well. It's going to be the guy with a garden and a cow. And you think about that. There's a lot of truth to that. You can have you can have a storehouse of gold, but if you go to the store and there is no food to buy, the guy that lives in a cave but has a cow and eats raspberries is going to be far better off than you. All right? It, it's just interesting. The other thing I thought about when I was thinking through this, the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Job, Lot, these people, where was their wealth? It was in their cattle, wasn't it? It always told you they had so many she-asses and so many cows and so many oxen. never says anything about them having any gold or silver. They just had animals, and they were considered wealthy people. So you dairy farmers here today, you can feel good about yourselves, right? So anyway, um, but, but just think about that. Can, can money stop the process of aging? Can't do a thing. And then whenever a person does have excessive wealth, think about the demands of time and energy that it takes to protect it and invest it, etc. I've said this before, and I'll say it one more time. Uh, Justin and I work with a variety of farmers in the business that we're in, our seed business. And I think he would concur with me that we would rather work with a farmer that is smaller and uh, perhaps even struggling, all right, as long as he'll pay his bill anyway, than, than a farmer that is on top of his game and has multiple employees and runs thousands of acres and is wealthy. Those people are just hard to get along with, very difficult. Number two, why is wealth miserable? Wealth, especially in our day today, is exceeding vulnerable. And again, uh, this Richie Lauer man points that out. You know, Proverbs 23, 5 says like this, Wilt thou set thine eyes upon that which is not? All right? So what is not? Riches certainly make themselves wings, and they fly away as an eagle toward heaven. That's what the psalmist had to say about um, about um, riches. Turn with me to Revelation 18, just briefly. At our um, at our Maranatha School Board meeting, we were talking about how that um, it just doesn't seem like there's many people preach out of Revelation anymore. Maybe what they as much as they would have in, the, in a former generation. And I'm not ready to take that up here this morning. But when I read through the book of Revelation and I come to chapter 18, I cannot help but think about the days we live in. So I'm just going to read a few verses here. After these things, I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily in a strong voice, saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And it's become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage for every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her. And I'll get this next phrase. And the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. Basically what that saying is, the merchants of Babylon had become rich on providing luxury to the economy of, of Babylon. 
It was no longer based on necessity. It was on luxury. All right, so now if you if you drop down to verse 9 there, and it says, The kings of the earth <clears throat> who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her shall bewell her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, the great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. All right, so here we have these merchants again that had been rich on the delicacies, and in one hour it had come to naught, and they, they no longer were in business, right? And if you go over to verse 15, the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing, and saying, Alas, alas, the great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches has come to naught. I'll just stop reading there. But but Babylon in Revelation and throughout the Bible depicts... um, Prosperity, luxury, ease beyond compare. Nowhere is Babylon equated with an idolatrous, um, like heathen nation. It's more just this comfortable, unbelievable existence in, in finery and luxury. And does that not describe uh, somewhat of our economy today? But the interesting thing is, it was gone in an hour. Gone. One hour. It makes me think of, um, you know, the stock market and the commodity market. W- what is that largely based on? It is largely based on the gut feeling of traders. Um, so, you know, you know, Ukraine and Russia starts fighting. What's the stock market do? Goes down. It turns dry in some part of the of the uh, of the country. What do commodity prices do? They go up. It rains. They go down. It's fickle in one hour. I can take you to people that have contracted $12 beans because they thought they were getting a good deal, and now they're just kicking themselves as they watch it go up, 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 right? And there will be people that will wait till it peaks and then falls like a rock before they, before they contract. That's, that's, the, that's the cycle of man. Things change. It's very, very fickle. And uh, back to our article that we read, you know, the, the man makes a point that because our current economy, as most of the world's economies, if not all the world's economies, I'm not up on that, but I would I would guess a, a goodly number, our economy is based on what we call fiat currency. In other words, the dollar bills we hold in our wallets are only good because the government says they're good. They're not good because they're worth anything at all. They're not backed up with any sort of uh, hard asset. It's just paper money that the government said is valid. And and we know what could happen with that, don't we? We can look at the economies of the world where that has gone south very quickly. So what's the point I'm making? Folks, things could change very quickly. Um, I, I, I don't think I have to sit here and make that case, do I? We, we realize that. I had to think of a uh, of a very well-known um, incident back on the East Coast, and probably most of you know about it, where um, a number of, of Mennonite men had a business that they that they uh, were running, and they, they basically had um, a lot of Mennonite people invested in that business. 
and uh, to the point where it went south, and it went south in a big way. And there was people that lost millions of dollars in that. And I personally know a person there in my home community that um, was known for years as a uh, as a wealthy man, and uh, he invested most of well, I don't know how much, but a large lion's share of his money in that particular business. And today he he's nearly a pauper. Uh, his wings, his his riches took wings and they flew away. Now it wasn't necessarily his fault. Uh, he was going on good faith there, but it just proves the point one more time. Ultimately, riches bring misery because it has a potential, of great potential, becoming an idol to us. And we know how God views idolatry. And we know where idol worshipers go, don't we? Um, we don't have to, uh, we don't have to belabor that very long. Luke 6, 24, Jesus says this, Woe unto you that are rich, for you have received your consolation. Alright? Now, now contrast that with what Simeon said in Luke 2.25, where Simeon looked upon uh, the, the, the newborn Messiah, and it says that this man Simeon was a just and a devout man, and what was he waiting for? He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, all right, which was Jesus. So we have a choice here. What's our consolation? Is it our riches or is it Jesus? All right, we're going to leave that. I hope uh, I hope we understand the point that uh, riches indeed seem to be a precursor to miseries. Let's go to verses 2 and 3. Your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver is cankered, and the rest of them shall be a witness against you, for they shall eat your flesh as it were, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped up treasures for the last day. What does this mean? Was I thought through this, rust only occurs in something when it has aged and has not been used or maintained. That's when things become rusty. And when they become rusty, they have not got there because they were used in its intended way. So you let a tractor, a vehicle, sit out here in the woods for 20 years, and it's going to rust. If you take that same vehicle and you use it and you maintain it, it might still rust here in Minnesota, but it's at least going to be useful, right? And it'll probably rust less because you're going to care about it and you're going to wash it and those kinds of things. And I think we get that same picture here with this gold and silver. I get this picture of somebody that has heaped up this stuff, just loaded it together and left it set. And it's not being used for anything useful. It's just sitting there in large quantities, rusting. What does it mean that it's been heaped together for the last days? Well, as I understand um, biblical biblical uh, scenarios, um, connotations uh, of last days, there's two things come to mind. You either have the last days as talking about the days right before the end of the world, that's, that's last days, referred to as, or you have the last days referred to as the last days of one's life. All right, so there's two last days here. And I think both of them could apply. I, I don't know what you're seeing, but um, you don't have to look too far. Do you, do you see or hear of people 
that would advise us that because of the uncertainty of our times, that we should probably go down in our basements and carve out some sort of a storehouse, a bunker-type thing, and stuff the thing full of food and gold and guns and these kinds of things. And we should heap things together for the apocalyptic times that at least these people were pretty sure is just right around the corner. Now, I don't necessarily want to poo-poo the possibility that apocalyptic times could be around the corner. They could be. I mean, you know, you could talk me into that. But just think about the foolishness of this. So if if you take a worst-case scenario where someone is going to drop an atom bomb somewhere on the United States and just wipe us out, um, how much food are you going to need? Are you going to get a bunker built big enough for that? I mean, good luck with that. Like, how do you begin to plan for that? And so you have people, you have people being um, unbelievably um, unrealistic about this and hoarding that kind of thing. Now, think uh, with me for a minute about some other people we know of in the Bible that had apocalyptic times. Think about the children of Israel out there in the middle of the desert, and they didn't have any food. Millions of people, possibly with no food. And what happened? God gave them manna. What were they supposed to do? Remember? One day at a time. You go out, you get your manna. One day at a time. Tomorrow there'll be more manna there, but don't don't get enough for two days. And they were in apocalyptic times. They wanted to hoard. I can believe, I, I can believe that I probably, I'm sorry to say it, but I might have been one of those guys that would have picked up another bushel and I would have bred, bred worms. I, I'm a slow learner that way. Think with me another po- apocalyptic scenario. The drought in Elijah's day, or Elijah, was it Elijah? I believe it was Elijah, where he, he takes up residence by the brook Cherith. And he's there by the brook, and he has his water, and the raven brings him one cookie a day, or whatever it was. One. One a day. He had his water and he has cookie. What happened when the water dried up? Into the town he goes and he finds a widow. She's also having terrible rough time. She's ready to make her last cookie. And, and Elijah says, just, just make mine first and give it to me. We know the story. What happened? There was always enough for the next day, the next day. It, her barrel didn't fill all, all the way up. Now think of me, with me another, another time when the, when the children of Israel wanted, wanted meat. And so God sent them quail. And they heaped this quail together and gorged on this quail and acted like pigs on the quail. And it displeased God so badly that he sent a plague through the camp and it, it killed multiple thousands of people. My point is this, to try to guess what's going to happen in the near or long-term future is a futile thing. Now, does that mean that if I uh, know I'm going to need a car here in a couple of years, that it's not right to um, start saving for that? I, I don't think so. That's, that's a reasonably known um, need, and it seems reasonable that a person would save for something like that. But to save the unreasonable heaping together of, uh, of monetary things for an unpredictable need, that's what James is talking about. That's not where the Christian is. The Christian puts his trust in the God that feeds sparrows. What about 
last days as it comes to, you know, I'm getting old. I turned 50. I got about 20 years till 70. Should I be thinking about that at all? What about retirement? Well, just for fun, I researched this whole idea of retirement. When the whole thing of retirement came in as a, as a societal um, way of doing things, the main reason was is because society realized by the time a person each reached age 70, most of them were well past their prime production. And in the assembly lines and so on, they were slowing down the lines. So they said, well, it would be a good, good idea to get rid of these guys. So they put them out to pasture in a nice way, about age 70, and, and there was incentive to do so. Look, we'll actually pay you to get off the assembly line because you're actually a detriment here, right? So that was kind of what was behind it. But the life expectancy at that time was age 70. So they put them out to pasture about the time life was kind of over for them, right? It was a very, it was a very calculated thing. In the interim, we now have the, the life expectancy of people go up, whereas the retirement age has gone down. So we have this chunk of time here where it has now morphed into this thing that we, we want this chunk of time to live it up in our last days. Now I, I doubt whether, I doubt whether James had that in mind here, because I don't know that retirement was a thing then. But it certainly fits. And I guess I would just like to say that, um, again, much the same thing applies. As we get older, we can't, we can't do the things we did when we were 20. We get that. And so some prudent, uh, understanding and preparation from that does make some sense. But to focus on heaping together so that we can live it up in those 15 or 20 years is not a godly concept. That does not come from the Bible. That is much more like the rich farmer that said, I got a lot here, so I'm gonna, you know, take my ease, I'm gonna eat, I'm gonna drink, and I'm gonna be merry. And the poor man forgot to factor in the fact that his soul would be required of him that very night. Not that he knew that, but he didn't even think about that possibility. If we would turn to Matthew 6, we won't do that because of lack of time. But if we would turn there, that particular passage in Matthew 6 speaks directly to the, to the thing of laying up treasures in heaven or laying up treasures on earth. And in that passage there, Jesus talks about a single eye or an evil eye. He said, if your eye is single, your body is full of light. If your eye is evil, your body is full of darkness. And if, if your, if the light, if, if the body, or I'm sorry, if the eye, which is supposed to be the light of the body, is darkness, it says, how great is that darkness? You know, folks, I think that's what that means is, if we can, if we can, if we can discipline ourselves by the grace of God to stand back and have a, have a proper view of what investment really is, which is, is sending it ahead, investing in the, in the kingdom of God, we're going to have sound and solid thinking and we're going to be able to make good decisions with these assets, these earthly assets that we hold. However, if we get this idea and we, and we, we go down this path that, you know what, this is mine and we become selfish and we, we become like the rich farmer, etc., and we stop investing with our earthly assets and heavenly things, then we become a person that's full of darkness. 
And when our minds are full of darkness, our thinking becomes increasingly unsound, and we, be, we, we increasingly make poor choices with our, with our earthly things. Let's make sure we're not those people. The third thing I'd like to look at here is in verse 4, where he talks about, as I read through that verse, it feels like the, the context is a, a, um, an issue of rich people taking advantage of poor people by fraud, it says, and, uh, and so on. I would say in principle here, wealth tends to breed stinginess and lend itself to class distinction. It, you know, as I said here, the, the, the rich apparently were abusing the poor and in becoming even richer, and the poor were becoming poor at their expense. You know, and, and, and this happened in, in those days. We had the feudal system where we had the slaves and we had the, um, the owners, etc. Um, our own country here has went through like a time of slavery, etc. So we understand how that could work. But how does that, how does that apply to me today? Well, if you go back to chapter two of James, we have two examples of, um, of, uh, perhaps where this could apply to us. We, the first example is where we have a, a church service and we have a well-dressed man comes in and we have a poorly dressed man and the, the, the wealthy man apparently got the front seat and the poor man got the back seat. Um, or at least the, the, the desired seat. It, it, it was not the way it should have been. And, and James gives this example and he said, these things shouldn't be among you. And I would say that, as I have observed, this is not something that's uncommon. Wealthy people sort of have a default club, and it somewhat can't be helped. In other words, um, wealth tends to be able to buy more toys than a person that's not wealthy. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. And, and by default, uh, it, it can tend to to become kind of a rich man's club, right? Um, I can do this. I have this cabin and you have that cabin. We can go to our cabins and hang out, whatever. I'm just using that for an example. It doesn't, you know, you could put anything in there. But the poor man can't do that because he's more, he, he has to worry about what he's going to eat tomorrow, right? And I just asked the question, should that characterize the brotherhood? Should that happen among us? The other example in uh, James 2 there, is an example of somebody that looks out his door and he sees this man that's knocking on the door and he's hungry. And the guy says, you know what? I really hope you have luck today finding some food. Thank you. Have a good day. And he said, you have bread in your cupboard. You could have fed this man and you didn't do it. Stinginess. I'm not going to give that beggar food because I worked for that food. I have that food. That's mine. You know, this feeling of no, no feeling of compunction to help others if it's going to hurt me. First John has much the same thing to say. If we have this world's goods and do not help a brother in need, how does the love of God dwell in us? I think we understand that, don't we? I think, I know we don't have many employers here at our congregation. Uh, most of us work by ourselves, and that's fine. But I certainly hope that those of us that do employ people are known for our fairness and our generosity. 
Um, I hope that we we are known for that. And I hope we're known as people that are moved to help those in need. I, I truly believe in the, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There's many things we can learn from that. But, the, but it, you know, it's the fact, I believe it's partly the fact that Lazarus was right on the doorstep of the rich man. I mean, he literally had to stumble over him when he went out the door. And the fact that the, the rich man had more than he needed and Lazarus didn't have what he needed and, and, and he could have helped him right there. He wouldn't have even had to tuck a check in the mail. It was right there. And he chose not to, I think, is, is one of the, the, the grievances that, um, that God had with that rich man. Let's be careful not to allow our wealth to make us selfish, naturally selfish. We, we're naturally that way, and it's, our, it's, a, uh, it's an enemy to us. I had to think of another, uh, going back and borrowing from my story of the of the uh, the company there on the East Coast that um, had basically built a lot of money out of people unintentionally. I think they I don't think they intended to, but it's the way it worked out. There was one one particular man in that um, that had invested just an awful lot of money in that particular uh, enterprise. And he lost it, of course, and it was it was in the millions. When when justice, quote quote, was was meted out by the law uh, there in the state of Pennsylvania on this man that had inadvertently, um, yeah, taken a lot of people's money. Just the 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 um, I was told by those that that know the situation much better than I do that. At the sentencing, the judge read many letters that he had received from people that had been literally bilked out of their money, extending forgiveness to this man. And the judge was, was, um, was quite awed by that. However, there was one exception. And that was this man that had lost millions. Now, he, he was by no way, um, he had not lost his life savings. He was still doing quite well, but he had lost a lot of money. He was not quite interested in extending forgiveness. In fact, he had quite another thing to say, and he had his he had a say in court. I just say that to say this: Was the fact that the man had so much money did that have anything? Had that done something to his heart that he could not extend the forgiveness that he should have to this particular person? Lastly, let's look at verse five. You have lived in pleasure on the earth and have been wantoned. You have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. How many of you have recently nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter? Anybody care to tell me what that is? How would I go about doing that? Well, I have to admit I did a little reading on that because I'm not exactly sure what the context was just by reading it. But there was one idea that I, I think could apply. So back in those days, um, there was no such thing as refrigerators or freezers, so you would have to have days of slaughter a bit oftener than we do, because, you know, like Abraham, when the people came to visit him, he goes out and he kills the fatted calf, right? He had a day of slaughter. And if you didn't eat that meat, um, what was going to happen to it? You, you either had to brine it down, you had to find a way of, of preserving it, but it wasn't easy. So the thought was, in the day of slaughter, they probably really ate it up. 
You know, they, they probably ate maybe a little more than they should have in the day of slaughter. And that made some sense to me. And so the, the, the writer was saying, perhaps what this is saying is you, you live every day like butcher day. Every day you're just living it up. Well, what's that the opposite of? That's the opposite of the Christian's call to temperance, is it not? Temperance, on the other hand, is the ability to discipline myself to live in a way that is not, that is comfortable, but not luxurious, and to do that by choice. Like, I could live better than I am, but I'm choosing not to, right? And again, to go back to our friend the rich man, what does it say he did? It said he fared sumptuously every day. Every day he fared sumptuously. He fared luxuriously. As I thought through that, you know, I truly believe that um, there is a place to fare sumptuously. In fact, as I look through like the Old Testament, even the New Testament, there was a lot of feasts in the Old Testament, where they fared sumptuously. Um, my point is, if you and your wife want to go out to a sumptuous restaurant for your anniversary, I, I don't know that God's going to judge you for that. I don't know that that enters into this context. Because you're celebrating something that is worthy of celebration, right? But now what if you did that weekly? Would that change it at all? Now we are faring sumptuously very regularly. Does that change the dynamics at all? Have we moved beyond temperance to living as in the day of slaughter? And, and there's many, many um, applications we could give to that. I, I, I've been thinking a lot about some, something that somebody told me recently and I'm just going to give this to you because I don't know how to think about it, but I've been thinking about it. And maybe the reason I can't think clearly about it is because of who I am. But I was told of a, of a man that is in our Mennonite communities that, again, quite wealthy man, and he lives in a, a luxurious house. Let's just call it what it is, right? However, the, the comment was this. He could have afforded far more than what he built even though what he built is quite luxurious. Now, now is that the way we should measure things? I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know. Um, and like I say, like I'm not sure that if I'm hesitant to say that that's out of bounds just because I might be guilty of the same thing, you know? I'm not sure. But think about that. Is that, is that, a, is that a reason that uh, we should justify things like that? The last thing I want to look at here is is um, where it talks about uh, living in pleasure, and we're going to wrap this up quickly. First um, Timothy five six, and this is in the context of talking about widows, but I'm going to suggest that this verse extends far further than widows. It says that she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. The point is, to live for pure pleasure is a very dead existence, right? 
He also says in 2 Timothy there, Paul says to uh, to Timothy, he said in the last days there's going to be perilous times, and he gives all kinds of description of this, and, he, and one of the things is lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. And again, I think the times we live in, it's been, it's, it's, it's hard to define when we have crossed that line because our culture is saturated with things we do strictly for the pleasure of it. And I'm not sure I'm ready to sit here and define. Now that's a pleasurable thing we should abstain from. This is something we can do. Some of those things we're going to have to think through ourselves, brothers. But I will say, I think we are skewing towards being a more pleasure-saturated people ourselves than we used to be. I personally know in 50 years that I've lived that we are engaging in things today that we would not have 40 years ago. And the, the question that then begs an answer is why. Why is that? I'm not sure I have the answer. But perhaps it is become, because we are struggling with being lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Well, how should we summarize this? You know, as I said in the beginning, we, we live. We live in this we live in this economy, we live in this culture. Uh, we're, we're pressured people, we really are. I think maybe maybe we should read just a few more verses down. In verse eight of chapter five there, it says, Be ye also patient Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now, we talked about coming to the house of the Lord this morning, didn't we, in Sunday school, and how that it's good to come, and you should hear, you should listen. I probably talked way more than I should have. Probably, maybe we should make a, um, I was thinking about this whole thing, back to the Sunday school lesson. Maybe it should be a policy that the person that's preaching that morning should not participate in Sunday school. Maybe that's what we should do, because I, I have my say here, you know. So Micah says no, but uh, so we have one vote the other way. So uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> didn't mean to embarrass you, Micah, but uh, I, wh- where am I going with this? I'm lost, I lost my thought. The coming of the Lord, that's what I wanted to get, that's what I wanted to emphasize. If we can, if we can lift our heads above the mundane, above the riches, above the wealth, above the pleasures, above all the stuff we talked about, and we can focus on the coming of the Lord, that's going to change it, isn't it? I mean, it's all going to burn one day. I don't care if it's fiat currency or if it's gold. It's burning. It's going to toast. And why are we going to invest our stuff here on this earth when there's so much better to come? You know, I had to think of Barnabas there. In Acts, he sold his real estate and he invested it in the kingdom of God. Dorcas, what was she known? She was a sower, but she was known for the things she gave away. And hopefully uh, we as brothers and sisters here at Prairie Congregation can follow those examples.